welcome to the Beers for Bacon show. I'm Jason Black and today I'm turning back the clocks. I'll be chatting about a few dishes that are sadly no longer du jour, from our book du jour. And I'll also have a few fusion flops that really shouldn't have outlived the dodo. As always, J.C. Viennes is in with more wine and travel stories. And today I've got a few tales of travel of my own, from my new favorite place in America, Harlem. D, E and F are the letters in today's alphabet soup. And because spring has sprung and it's Easter weekend, I thought we'd do some lamb. Now, we can't have a properly mad show without roping in Italian-American mafioso of the meatball, Vinnie Lauria. He's road testing this week's kitchen gadget for me. And a little later on, he'll also be sharing his grandma's secret recipe for tomato sauce. Yes, the sauce for pasta that you should be pouring out of a saucepan, not a sauce bottle. Before all that, let's start with some wine. Welcome back, JC. You got me thinking the whole week. You threw out my 20 years of experience of matching food and wine, and you've said it's all about the mood. And, and I thought, what are you talking about? You need to tell me more. Well, you know, Jason, I'm married to an Italian woman, Maria. <laughs> oh, here right? we go. And so I learned about this from them, from the Italians. You know, they have a wine uh, in, in the north of Italy called Amarone. Amarone della Valpolicella. And this is a big wine. It's, it's, it's a powerful wine. It's a rich wine. And it's also quite high in alcohol. So it's a very warming wine. I call this comfort wine, like comfort food, right? But in Italy, they call this vino da meditazione, wine to meditate. Think of it. We are obsessed with food and wine matching. In Italy, this kind of wine, they actually keep it for after dinner. What they do is they finish their meal, they move to another room, maybe there's a fire cracking in the, in the fireplace, and they all sit down around a, a circle or face-to-face, and then they open this bottle. And then they serve to each other, and then they take a sip, and they reflect on the day, they reflect on the past week, and they start talking and making plans about the next week. Vino da meditazione, I love it. This is what wine should be about. It should be about making you feel good. And this is what I'm about. Wine is for pleasure. Wine is for emotion. Champagne's always been considered one of those beverages that get people in a really good mood. What other, what other varietals are there that are really good for moods? I think that uh, you can say that uh, it's about varietals, you're right, because some grapes will give you a style and other grapes will give you another style. So for me, uh, rather than being about a region, I prefer to focus very much on style. I give you an example. You're talking champagne. Prosecco. Prosecco, many people believe it's the cheap version of champagne, but it has nothing to do. Prosecco is a sparkling wine. And the way Prosecco is made, it's, a, it's made to be cheerful. It's made to be uh, happy. Champagne, it's made to be a little bit more serious because the production method of Champagne is completely different. But when you come to Prosecco, because it's made uh, in a tank under pressure and uh, the wine will be very vibrant, very floral, very fruity. 
And it's not surprising that it's the best-selling uh, sparkling wine in the world today because people love it as aperitif. They drink this before the, their meal. They drink this with friends. They even mix it with some uh, uh, juices or some, some aperol in Italy. And this is the ultimate uh, aperitivo drink. Um, for me, I like to say that uh, this is... Uh, you have a glass of Prosecco in Italy... You have the girls on one side of the piazza and you have the boys on the other side of the piazza at, and then they look at each other and they drink more Prosecco and everybody becomes very happy and in the mood for the evening. That's what wine is about for me. More about style because a style makes you happy or a style makes you serious or in the case of Amarone, the style makes you comfortable, emotional, meditative. If Champagne and Prosecco are different, how does Carver and, say, the South African Cup Classique fit into it? They are more closely related to Champagne than they would be from Prosecco because their method of production is very similar to Champagne. Uh, I'm talking about method of production. Now, Champagne, it's two fermentation. The first fermentation is like any other wine, but the second fermentation for Champagne is inside the bottle. And because of that, you end up having some yeast inside the bottle that gives you this sort of uh, uh, toast bread or biscuit type of aroma. Prosecco, as we discussed earlier, it's a, it's a wine that the second fermentation is in the tank. And because of that, we have the fruity floral aroma and also a very vibrant texture. Uh, Cava is because it's from Spain, the climate over there is a little warmer than Champagne. So suddenly the wine here is a bit more mouth-filling. It's a bit more uh, soft and velvety, whereas Champagne would be much more uh, uh, austere and uh, refreshing because its acidity is much higher. Many people believe that Cava is, is the poor brother of Champagne. And it's unfortunate because there are many producers uh, in Spain who are making a very strong effort to make cava very interesting. And how can you make uh, wine interesting is by the aging process. And in Spain, they have a different qualification system, a different classification system that is actually based on how long the wine is aged in the cellar before release. And you can find beautiful cavas, actually, that are, like I said, rich and mouth-filling with the complexity of some aging, and uh, they will be delightful drinks as well. If, if we keep along the theme of having bubbles and it being great for mood, is there any way to end a meal? Are there any great wines that are quite bubbly? Well, in fact, Jason, you're bringing back to Italy. Maria will be so happy to listen to this show today. Because if you start your meal with Prosecco, to make you happy, to make you in the mood, you have to finish your meal with Moscato. So is that a rule? It's a, the rule in my house anyway. It's always fun to talk to J.C. Viennes. Of course, he'll be back next week with more great wine stories. Vinnie Lauria is a meatball legend. He's the main man behind the stoves at Posta Publica and Linguini Fini in Soho. I wondered if a gadget that took the manhandling, so to speak, out of the equation would be the right fit for him. So I popped over to one of his kitchens and asked him to try out my recently purchased meatball maker. It's a pair of tongs that that have a couple of circular cups or circular balls on the end 
or you know, I guess half half uh, spheres, and with some holes in them. I'm not exactly sure what the holes are for. It's almost like a child's pair of scissors with a couple of uh, tennis balls that have been cut in half on either side, on, on either end, and then you just can close it like that. You get, it's called the stainless steel meatballer. I'm a, I've always been about the hand rolled and the hand cupping myself. I'm, I'm more of a hand cupper when it comes to it. And actually, that's how kind of how uh, I always grew up. I've never seen one of these silly gadgets. It's always been, you know, mom, grandma, gramps all in the kitchen rolling meatballs. We roll thousands and thousands of meatballs uh, a week. It's all about the hand rolling. So I, I guess I'll give this a try and see how, see how it goes. I'm going to dip the baller into the meatball mix here. See if I can get a nice little, uh, nice round ball. It's almost like an ice cream scoop. It's almost got a perfect scoop like you would for an ice cream. It's got the veal meatball squeezing out the top and the bottom. I'm not sure I'm feeling it too much, but I'm going to have to get my hands into it in order to get any kind of uh, feel for it. Yeah. Basically what it comes down to is I tried dip, dipping the, the stainless steel meatballer into the thing. I No matter what I do, I have to take it out and hand roll it anyway. But I'll tell you what, the key to a good, perfectly packed meatball is hand rolling it anyway. So you're kind of making use some sort of silly gadget to try and make it faster and more efficient when, in all actuality, it's far faster and more efficient to just pick up the veal or beef or pork or whatever you're making a meatball out of by yourself and roll it by hand. It's the, that's the way it really should go. Um, however, I will say, I will say the one beautiful thing about this is this recipe that they provided on the back. The stainless steel meatballer comes with a recipe for Hawaiian meatballs. Okay, and Hawaiian meatballs, we all know, are the finest meatballs in the whole of, in all of, uh, all of New York and <laughs> the, the finest meatballs I've ever seen. So, uh, you know what, I'm basically thinking we're just gonna take all of our meatball recipes and change them to Hawaiian meatballs. You got a one pound of lean ground beef. You got a half cup of soft bread crumbs, definitely, of course. You got a, a beaten egg, you got a clove of garlic, you got a half teaspoon of dry mustard, a half teaspoon of salt, and essential to any meatball, of course, you got a tablespoon of soy sauce. It's a delight. You got to have a little bit of pineapple in there, right? And I, I mean, I feel like we're missing a little bit of bacon, bacon pineapple. I don't know. That's with the, the ham and pineapple. I mean, we got a little luau, we got some grass skirts, we got some girls with coconut bras running around here. Uh, I don't know. I think I'll stick to the veal, baby. Jason, you want me to rate this? I'm gonna go ahead and give the stainless steel meatballer a three out of 10. Wait, stainless steel meatballer gets a three out of 10. However, the Hawaiian meatball recipe with the hula girls dancing around here, I'm giving them a nine out of 10. <laughs> and Vinny will be back a little later on with his grandma's tomato sauce recipe. It's been a hectic few weeks for me. I lost my mum recently and have spent a lot more time with my family back in South Africa. We chatted about all of the moments we've shared in our lives, meals we've eaten, and places we've visited. Times like these make us nostalgic and drive home the importance of those that are closest to you. My family is a restaurant family and food has always been at the centre of our gatherings. Usually we'd meet at one of the restaurants, but over the last few weeks we took turns cooking at everyone's home. A proper family meal, with my brother roasting chicken one week, my brother-in-law doing steaks on the Weber the next. 
I even got stuck in with a few meals myself, with the help of my younger sister making an oxtail curry and lamb ribs in a slow cooker. Desserts ended each meal, be it my dad getting an apple pie from the farmer's market and serving it with custard, or my sister-in-law's brilliant chocolate bread pudding. Our last family meal ended in a decadently delicious South African malva pudding made by my sister. Now, I'm sure you'll see the irony of a British-born, South African-raised, Hong Kong permanent resident doing a food show that features a French-Canadian wine expert, a Swiss-French master baker, and a New York-Italian meatball maestro talking about a cookbook of British dishes. But hey we here. So let's get to our cookbook review and thank Nostalgia as well as our acceptance of all things fusion while we're at it. Today's book is a collection of superb recipes by Simon Hopkinson and Lindsay Bearham called The Prawn Cocktail Years. Written in 1997, the premise of the book is simple. It's a collection of dishes that were once great but have been abandoned either because they simply went out of fashion or worse still because countless chefs have added their own twists, ruining them. Simon Hopkinson has had a masterful career as a chef and a writer. In fact, I've got all of his books and have thoroughly enjoyed each one. He's a chef chef, cooking approachable food and bloody well. Lindsay Bearham has had some notable cookbooks under her belt too, so the collaboration could only end up in a book that's a keeper. Beef stroganoff, steak au poivre, chicken Kiev and coquevin. Fish pie, fish cakes and foie gras on steak. Yes, the classic Rossini that you still find in Hong Kong steakhouses and plenty of other dishes are featured. Prawn cocktail, black forest ghetto and crepe suzette with plenty of other continental classics make this a fun book to read. I especially enjoyed the little introduction to each of the recipes, going through its history and highlighting the odd fall from grace moment that each of them share. The author's introduction says it all. The purpose of this book is to redefine the great British meal and rescue other similarly maligned classic dishes from years of abuse, restoring them to their former status. The dishes we have in mind have no particular heritage. Some have their roots in Escoffier's classic cuisine. Others are British nursery fare or greasy spoon stalwarts. What these dishes have in common is the potential for being truly excellent. I believe the pair has delivered on their promise with recipes that are delicious. They're easy to replicate and are probably as good, if not better, than the original creations. Treat yourself to a copy of The Prawn Cocktail Years by Simon Hopkinson and Lindsay Bearham. It's a good book to cook from and the perfect opportunity to cook for your family and friends. So don't put off doing it next week, next month, next year. Do it now and enjoy life one great meal at a time. I've put the recipes for Lindsay's chocolate bread pudding and Alison's mulva with a few classics like my own prawn cocktail and awesome fish pie up on the BS for Bacon Facebook page. Check them out there. I shared my experiences at Katz's Deli with you last week after a week-long visit in New York. I went with a good mate and we stayed in Harlem doing it via Airbnb. It was my first trip to Harlem and I'll have to be honest and say I was a bit nervous given the reputation of the place in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But from the moment we arrived to the moment we left, we loved every single bit of it. The place, the people, the food. From an awesome hat shop that could have easily been teleported from Fifth Avenue 
to a roadside mobile kitchen that was run with such passion it cranked out some of the best street food I've had in a long, long time. We ate fried chicken and a few less successful dishes at Marcus Samuelson's Red Rooster and then ate at a diner called Harlem Shake that was so good. We went back the next night just to make sure we weren't dreaming on the first night. My mate Stephen, Mike, the owner of the apartment, and I got to discussing gentrification and the positive and negative effects it has on areas, in particular Harlem. Now we're seeing it here too. Areas like Kennedy Town, Saiyingpun and Saiwonho are on their way to becoming foodie destinations. Putting the socio-economic discussion aside, what I found fascinating about Harlem, quite selfishly my stomach would argue, was that the food we enjoyed was cooked by long-time Harlem residents. It wasn't out of town as moving to an area on the up-and-up because rents were lower. It was food cooked for the community, by people of the community, and with a lot of love. I chatted to Tammy Treadwell, the owner of an outstanding mobile kitchen called Harlem Seafood Soul, all about Harlem. Food has been my passion. I love food. And food has always been a connector in our family. I have kind of an eclectic family. Part of my family is from the Caribbean. The other part of my family is from right here in the U.S., so in the southern part of the U.S. So in the southern part of the United States, we have what's called soul food. I'm sure you know what that is. Soul food, S-O-U-L, means that it makes you feel good when you eat it. And when you eat food that makes you feel good, in my opinion, it has to be top quality ingredients, top quality um, food, um, that you prepare and then you have to put in that extra special ingredient that my grandmother used to always put in her food and she used to say I threw some extra love in there for you so we put love in our food in the south and in the Caribbean we are folks who like to just we like flavor we like flavor, we like color we like to you know, in, incorporate different ingredients so with my mac and cheese bites I was inspired by them from visiting other restaurants in Harlem. And what I learned was that their mac and cheese bites had a little something lacking. I'll put it that way. Mostly the cheese. <laughs> so I went home and for weeks, my family, my kids will tell you that all they ate was mac and cheese bites because I was perfecting the recipe for about two weeks. So I had mac and cheese bites early in the morning, late at night, that's all they ate. So now that we've got it down to a science, I love offering it here. Funnel cakes. My funnel cakes. Right now, if you want a funnel cake in any of the five boroughs, you have to go to Coney Island in Brooklyn or way to South New Jersey to Great Adventures. Funnel cake is a fried cake batter that it doesn't absorb oil, so it's not greasy. And then we serve it as a dessert. We put powdered sugar or strawberries sometime. We have ice cream or white or dark chocolate, caramel sauce. We find that we give that away. We don't charge for those extra ingredients because we want people to, who have never experienced a funnel cake to get the full experience of a funnel cake so that they can, you know, have that experience. Because I've met people who are my age who have never tried one before. Um, seafood is my passion. A lot of mobile vendors and even restaurants try to steer away from seafood because fish in particular 
because it's so difficult to keep preserved and fresh and there's a very um, uh, small shelf life for it and so um, I taught microbiology for three years at a junior college so I'm like really really meticulous in preserving making sure that the fish is at its absolute peak freshness making sure that I introduce different types of fish to Harlem because traditionally in Harlem we had whitings and porgies if you know what a porgy fish is now um, since being a member of the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce I, I do the Harlem Week events every August it's a big big culmination of the month, the summer long events on one, West 135th Street and I introduce tilapia I introduce Maryland crab cake and now I'm introducing my fish tacos for which I use a nice meaty uh, bassa or a swai filet. And um, when I tell people what type of fish it is, they're like, I've never heard of that before. But it's, you know, it's a common fish. And I like that, the reception that I get. People have greatly made me feel so good. There's so much love in this village. Right now, I don't think you can turn a corner without running into at least 50 different nationalities. And so it's a melting pot. And we're really, really, really excited about all the new things that are happening and the changes that are happening. And believe it or not, it's a very, very safe village. The village of Harlem is safe. I've been here, like I said, for 52 years, and I've never had a problem. And I have no multiple people that have traveled from all over the world and they have the Harlem experience like there was a family here from Texas yesterday and they put a post on my Facebook on Harlem Seafood Facebook saying thanks for the Harlem experience it's, it's a unique place none, none like anywhere else in the world and I feel particularly proud to be the very first uh, entrepreneur to possess a mobile uh, kitchen. This is a state-of-the-art, eco-friendly, mobile kitchen. I really take offense if somebody calls me a food cart. I am not a food cart. Thanks, Tammy. For me, authenticity is the key. This new fashion of littering menus with must-have hip ingredients when they seem so out of place with the concept got me thinking about dishes that have flopped or are just created to be du jour. Last week, I saw a kale Caesar salad served with avocado on an Indian restaurant's menu. It's as out of place as crispy quinoa cakes as the base for eggs Florentine. They're not dishes that anybody's going to be writing cookbooks on in the future. Or maybe they will be. Who knows? Until then, let's chat about a classic Easter recipe that works perfectly for spring. Bone-in Roasted leg of lamb is a spring favorite, especially when it's spiked with slivers of new season's garlic, rosemary, and anchovies. All you have to do is preheat your oven to about 220 to start, and for four people, you'll need a bone-in leg of lamb, about two kilos, six cloves of garlic sliced thin, about six anchovy fillets cut in half, half a bunch of rosemary, some butter, a cup of white wine and some lemon juice. Of course, you'll need seasoning. Using a thin, sharp knife, make 12 deep incisions in the lamb. Push your little finger into these to open them up a bit and then put in half an anchovy, some garlic, some rosemary 
into each hole and then rub the lamb with some softened butter and season very well. Just drizzle a little bit of lemon juice on, then put the lamb onto a roasting tray with the white wine and pop into the hot oven. After about 20 minutes, turn the heat down to 175 and you're going to cook it for about an hour with some tin foil on top, depending on how you like your meat done. During the cooking, baste the lamb with some of those juices and as always with meat dishes, allow it to rest before carving. Let's head over and chat to Chef Vinnie Laurier about his grandma's tomato sauce. So as far as uh, tomato sauce, we really take a classic recipe. We take a real classic approach at it. Um, you got, you start off with uh, olive oil and a cold pot and a cold sauce pot. You mince up really fine some carrots and onions. Um, and you do something called sofrito. You bring the heat up and you cut and it, you slow fry it. Sofrito in Italian is slow fry. So you slow fry the carrots and onion for about a half hour to 45 minutes until you get some nice, beautiful caramelization out of them. Add the garlic, toast that up a little bit. And then uh, if I was in my grandmother's garden, I'd be taking uh, beautiful canned tomatoes that we had harvested and then canned. But uh, you can just simply use uh, pomodori palati, which is canned uh, canned peeled tomatoes really really nice you crush those up a little bit by hand toss those in simmer for about an hour hour and a half reduce it down by about a quarter and then you finish it with a little bit of extra olive oil extra virgin olive oil and uh, a big handful of fresh basil and you have a really nice clean tomato sauce a little salt and pepper to season it to taste and you got something far better than anything you'll ever get out of a can or a jar the thing about Italian food is that it's so simple, but you have to get it right. Just like Chef Finney does every time. Now, let's do some alphabet soup. D is for devil, like kidneys cooked in a spicy sauce. It's also for dacquois, a meringue-styled cake made with nuts. D is for dauphinoise, a posh name for potato bake. And it's also for dauphine, another potato dish where potato purees mixed with shoe pastry and fried until crispy. E is for empanada, the South American version of the pasty. And of course it's for escalope, those thin slices of meat or fish that cook in an instant. E is also for espanol, the mother of all meat sauces, and for entrecot, the daddy of all steaks. F is for financier, little cakes made with egg white and nuts, and for five spice powder, a Chinese blend of cinnamon, star anise pepper, cloves and fennel. It's also for fondue, a cheese dish that's worth yodeling about, for sure. That's about it from me today. I'll be back same time, same place next week. Have a great Easter weekend and happy cooking. <laughs>